Hey, you, 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 listener, it's the pill pod of pills, me, together with Eric. Yo, can you identify yourself when I say your name? Eric. Here. Victor. Here. <laughs> and that's all we have with us today. <laughs> what about what about McManus? Sorry, Matt. Power of air. What if McManus? Um, we haven't done that in a while, so if there's anyone who who doesn't know who's who, now all, everything's been cleared up. You could just cut this and put this as our permanent intro. You trying to get us to like acknowledge our existence. <laughs> Great. You are listening to the Pill Pod, which is something that we do on Fridays. And well, we do it on Wednesdays, sometimes Thursdays. Critical theory, <laughs> philosophy. Today's philosophy, real, real ass philosophy. Yeah. And we got to get this done quick so that we can uh, play AOE 4. Age of Empires, oh. sorry. Eric, do you have Age of Empires yet? No. I don't know if it'll work for my computer, man. I built this thing for work, not for games. You mean you built it shittily? I mean, video cards right now are fuckered, so I can't afford one. Yeah, it's impossible. They are extremely expensive. I've been on a wait list for one year. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. It's because of the crypto bullshit. Yeah, the crypto mining plus uh, I think just COVID disruptions. I I did I built one with an Intel card with a built-in uh, video card. It's it's not too bad. It it gets the basic the indie games I can play. I don't know if I can play those uh, AAA slave labor games like uh, AOE. <laughs> If I'm not mistaken, uh, I think like there, there's a, like, yeah, the semiconductor shortage is like the other. So it's like that combined with crypto is just destroying it. I think we should just do the critical theory thing and blame capitalism. We'll just say it's capitalism. Fuck it's you. the easy answer. Yeah, exactly. the Easy religious answer. So today to we are not me. we are not talking about capitalism at if all. Want, maybe if we want to sound more sophisticated, we could say it's all neoliberalism's fault. That's the kind of vogue way of saying it's all capitalism's fault. Okay. So yeah, exactly. much, much more capitalism. That's, I mean, they, they sound like the same thing to me. It's much more nuanced. Yeah. It is Friday or your current temporal horizon intends from a Friday, November 5th. Indeed. But that Friday will forever have been actualized if you're listening to this after Friday, November 5th. But for us, it is Wednesday, November 3rd. So we have a different temporal horizon intending towards Friday, which has not happened yet. Now, what does all this mean? Indeed. It means we are, at long last, covering phenomenology. Yay. The good stuff. We've been bouncing around a, a, a bit for the last month, doing short stories, shows, books, mostly so that we could read up on this. Um, an extended series, when we get back to the text at length, the phenomenological text, the text of real life, not politics, not metaphysics, like we were arguing about about a month ago, Deleuzean versus uh, Hegelian metaphysics, but now it's yeah. back to real life. And yeah, we're going to stick with it. I've been pushing yeah, this for is... a while. Every time we were like, what are we going to do? I say phenomenology, and then someone comes up with something uh, more pressing. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm happy we're doing phenomenology. It's one of the main, uh, I guess, my main strengths. You know, I don't. I'm not going to feel like uh, like like a 
Like I'm out of my league, like when we try to talk about Deleuze or Derrida. Well, the tables have turned on me because it's not my strong suit. But I, I feel like I have a, a decent sense of phenomenology in general. I know Matt does because he took my book, but look what he did to my book. Can you see the spine? Oh, it's broken. I, I, I hate I hate lending out my books for this reason, but I feel bad not because then they're just sitting there doing nothing. But at well, least he didn't get like uh, he didn't get Dorito dust all over it, so I'm thankful for that. Or any other <laughs> do you, any other types of stains. I mean, I'd be careful. Don't look at page two twenty three. I was going through a bad coke addiction at that point, so if you <laughs> happen to graze off a little white powder, jeez, therapy is. Did he mark it up at all with pencil? No, he didn't. Thank thank you, Matt, for no, not marking Matt, up my books. Did you, never, do you never mark up your books? No, I never do that. Uh, the most I'll do is I'll sometimes write down quotations from the text that I think are particularly germane, usually with a reference number. But the reality is that I'm such an academic now that the main reason I read text is like, okay, at some point or another, I'm going to need to reference this section for this work in this particular journal article or book or whatever it happens to be. So that's what I look for. You know, the juicy yeah. statements. God, I love marking up my books. Not my library books, my books. Yeah, yeah. I, I save my pen for the library books. Did I say what book Matt borrowed? It's the phenomenology of perception, but we're doing fen we're doing phenomenology generally, so it might incorporate some, like Kant to Husserl to Heidegger, um, but we're gonna yeah. do it. But we're gonna do it topically instead of by text. So today we're doing life world, the actual world, actual life, um, yeah. and the gooey center. I think that most of us are going to refer to is Maurice Merleau-Ponty. Maurice. And what prompted this, as rote as it sounds, we should just start, we should just start with what prompted this. Yeah, good idea. As rote as it sounds, we live in a media-saturated culture. <laughs> so we, as individuals, maybe Matt's different, but the rest of us have not long been media-saturated because... Grad school somewhat cloisters you from whatever counts as theory on social media. But speaking for myself, having been a, an internet denizen for two years regularly, I'm starting to go a little bit insane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Understandably. And the cure for insanity and the cure for disembodied anime avatars arguing about Gautari is none other than this man, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, and the embodied... Life world. So please pay attention. We will save your soul by the end of this series. I also wonder yeah, whether hopefully. this series is inspired by the uh, another rote thing, the, the sudden alienation from all of our social relations that COVID has inflicted upon us. Phenomenology is a way of getting back to some relation to something, right? Relation to the world around you, relation to the objects around you, how you perceive them. I think what inspired this is also a kind of uh, desire for to present philosophy in a way that it can actually help your life and be relevant to you when you go out into the world and not just be like a kind of David Hume hobby horse where he does it in his attic and it all sounds great, but when he goes into the marketplace, it makes no difference whatsoever because 
common sense trumps philosophical speculation when it comes to living your life. So phenomenology is a way of getting back into the world and relating to it in a new way since COVID and other climate-related things are slowly alienating us from our wider social networks and maybe our uh, our sorts of long-held habitual relations to the weather and the animals and that sort of stuff. The odd thing is that's the primary thesis of the book that I have that's coming out in a few months, The Emergence of Postmodernity, that the, emer that the time consciousness of neoliberal postmodernity is primarily phenomenological in part for that reason. So it's timely. I agree. Wait, what? What are you saying is phenomenological? The oh, the main thesis of my new book that's coming out in I guess five or six months, whenever they decide to announce it, is that postmodernity generates its own distinctive time consciousness, uh, which is primarily phenomenological in orientation, in part because phenomenology offers a kind of way out of the isolation uh, that many people feel within the conditions of neoliberal uh, capitalism uh, and it's kind of ahistoricism. Yeah, You're I, using a lot of words that I said we weren't going to say. Think, I think my general presentation uh, triggered that association in Matt's mind. And so it Well, it I'm kind of curious. Cool. Well, when you say that it's phenomenological, what do you mean by the word phenomenological? Oh, that's what we got to get into, isn't it? The primary argument that I make is that uh, there's been kind of a movement towards an individuated conception uh, of ecstatic time that That's defines the neoliberal subject uh, as a way of trying to gain a kind of authenticity within the context of postmodernity. Uh, but I'm also critical of it by saying that what we need to do is move away from a phenomenological time consciousness to one that's more dialectical, uh, historically minded, if you want to call it that. Hmm. I mean, uh, yeah, I see. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Well, well, we'll get into that. I'm not sure if I, if I, if yeah, I, that, if I agree with you. That sounds like a fertile ground for a lot of disagreement. Because sure. I don't like a lot of what you just said. Yeah, because it sounds like you're kind of con it kind of sounds like you're conflating phenomenology with like individualism, and that just that seems wrong to me. But no, it's not necessarily individualistic in the sense that um, it implies a retreat into a myopic view of the world. Uh, so much as it's a retreat towards a desire for phenomenological meaning uh, in the extensive life world that we have with other people. That's primarily framed in terms of self creation uh, and a yearning for authenticity in the part of our social on the part of ourselves and in our yearning for social relations that are also authentic. Fair enough, but I I take issue with calling that phenomenological, but anyway, we're getting we're getting off track here. Let's I let's, uh... like phenomenology because of its object oriented sort of basic this basic to its stance is it's very object oriented. It's very practical. It's very sort of not, not necessarily here and now. There's some weird ways of talking about time and space, but it is very much uh, about our involvement with things in the world and our, I mean, at least with Ponty, our having a body and our subjectivity sort of implying a body that interposes itself between us and the world and it's equipped with all sorts of ways of understanding the world that we kind of have to understand first before we get to the objects themselves. But that was kind of Husserl's, I guess, original phenomenological call, right? Get back to the, to the objects themselves. Is that, that's, that sort of sounds right, doesn't it? So today we are not being precise. This is important. We will get precise later on, but today we're just going to mash up a bunch of concepts 
from Husserl, Heidegger, and Merleau-Ponty and just call it all life world. So they all use similar concepts and words. Uh, horizon comes up a lot. But in the end, it amounts to more or less the same explanatory structure of phenomenology, which is how do we experience the world? And the life world is the space in which objects appear to us. We also appear to objects and we also appear to ourselves. Yeah, I think, I mean, in the translation that I had, I think, is that the same thing as the phenomenal field? The field, right. Not quite, yeah. but close. He says horizon often also. I, I think it's milieu in French. I think the field, the right. field, and the horizon are yeah. There, there's something to get a, a hold of because that was confusing me a little bit. But you know, that's all over Heidegger too, right? The horizon of our understanding. So it is, it is historical in that way when you talk about the horizon of understanding. Because you know, when you're when you're reading an old book or something, when I'm reading Dante, I'm trying to fuse my horizon of understanding, which is sort of cultural and historical and specific to me. And with Dante's, which is a whole other world, I got to learn about Guelphs and Ghibellines and medieval Florence, and it's it's a so there is a, there is the historical there. It's not dialectical, maybe. Yeah. I'm up to Matt's standards, but it's no. uh, maybe maybe uh, it it is that way though. Well, well it, let's, let me it, it let me first just say Sorry. what is a, what is a horizon? What is the metaphor for? Um, a horizon just means a limit. It means the edge, the border. Um, what what you see appears within the horizon. What you can't see, which you assume still exists, appears outside of the horizon. So you are together with things as they come to be within your horizon and what's outside the horizon you don't know. When something new appears in your horizon, then you sort of have to adapt and adjust to it so that it makes sense with all the other stuff that's in there. And that's kind of the way that all three of them use the the analogy Analogy or metaphor? I think it's a I think it's a metaphor because horizon is you know it's got that word horizontal in it. You should hear the resonance of horizontal there. And where do we find a horizon? I'm not sure if this is correct, but in in painting, right? In perspectival painting, and perspective is going to come a lot, up quite a lot. So you have your horizon, your horizon line where the sky meets the ground, and you can't see anything beyond that. And all, and then you have your focal point, where all the uh, lines that go into the space of the image tend to meet at that point. If you're using mathematical one-point perspective, but the horizon is, I think, a metaphor maybe transposed over from Renaissance painting into philosophy, to denote you know the edge of our understanding kind of thing, right? As far you know, our historical horizon is what we can understand versus what's kind of lost to the past and then the spatial horizon is kind of a little more literal maybe in that sense i should say I'm confused, there's an interesting trans go ahead Victor. well i was gonna say i'm, con I'm confused because like like it, so you're saying that in merleau-ponty there's a phenomenal horizon i mean the the main concept so is that different than like his idea of like that we that we get experiences a gestalt as like one thing that is the phenomenal field um, no, Gestalt is the form, right? The horizon structure he talks about is something different. So the phenomenal field is the term that I'm 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 familiar with. I was looking for for a phenomenal horizon, but I don't. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, the horizons. Well, there are inner and outer horizons. Your attention has an inner horizon. That's the the phenomenon that is limited by your attention at a moment. But then there's also the general horizon 
which is the limit of what you can experience. So Merleau-Ponty also discusses temporal horizons uh, in which the past appears in the present. That would be something like memory. But it's also a little tough to be faithful because we're reading in English, Husserl is writing in German, Merleau-Ponty in French, and Heidegger in his own made-up language. So it'd be a lot more meticulous to try to line up these terms one-to-one. But in English, yeah, we get field I, I think part of the problem horizon. is the original uh, Husserlian notion uh, of the life world uh, actually emerged very late in his own phenomenological project. Um, it's actually quite interesting because Husserl was far less dogmatic in some points than Heidegger occasionally accuses him of because the phenomenological project started adjacent, if you want to call it, uh, to the Neo-Kantian project of resuscitating idealism, uh, except insisting that we move towards things in themselves, as Eric put it. Uh, and there was this kind of Cartesian flavor uh, to early Husserlianism uh, that was criticized by people like Heidegger, who saw it as too beholden to the philosophy of the subject. Um, and later on, Husserl moves towards characterizing the life world as something that's created far more uh, by the intersubjective processes of meaning formation that people engage with. Um, and interestingly enough, that's the kind of conception of life world that's later picked up by sociologists um, and social commentators like Habermas. Um, theory of communicative action is actually really centered on this idea that the life world has been colonized uh, by the neoliberal capitalist order uh, and needs to be liberated from this, right? Yeah. Uh, and from the perspective of a kind of discourse theorist like Habermas, uh, one of the problems with a kind of Pontian notion of the phenomenological spirit, uh, field is it's still too wrapped up uh, in the philosophy of subjectivity. Um, I don't think that's really fair, but then there's big debates that go on with, uh, within the circle around that. You know, uh, is the life world in its Matt, I'm going to have to ask you to speak English because we're on <laughs> we're on day one oh, of phenomenology. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, so I mean, there's basically this. Sure, yeah. there, there's. Basically, this idea that you find in the late Husserl, uh, the crisis of the European sciences, where he responds to Heidegger by saying, there is some truth to this idea that the notion of the life world as created by the individual or as giving meaning to the individual is hugely problematic since so many of the meanings that we ascribe to the objects around us are set by things like language, history, culture, uh, scientific discourse, you name it. Right? We're jumping ahead a little bit there. Try to take this step by step. Let's just start with object. Let's start with objects. I agree. I mean, I think that like that is like the one of the puzzles. I think the other puzzle like is like why do you, like so if we have this. I think there's like a tension between um, sort of like thinking about subjectivity as like a rational subject in the sense that like I mean obviously the the or like the debates you know kind of rationalism or empiricism like how is our consciousness um, like why are objects appearing the way that they are to us? And like, you know, there were ideas that, oh, we must be judging there to be like a behind. But I think like the point of, of, of using phenomenology to notice like the horizon or phenomenal field is to be like, well, actually, when you like pay attention, you see that like you're not doing any rational calculation a lot of the time, like things are just soliciting you uh, that there's like a behind to that glass that you're looking at or something like that. And I think like, the puzzle is part of it, part of the puzzle anyways, like, well, why is it like, what explains the fact that like, we don't have to like use our faculty of judgment or something like that to figure out uh, what's behind or something. Yeah. So we, we, if we're doing even the beginning of uh, phenomenology proper, we have all these answers to what objects are and really what Husserl's trying to figure out and Merleau-Ponty after is how do we get an idea of a thing in our head. And Merleau-Ponty wants to kind of clear the table yeah. of 
Descartes' version of how we get an idea in our head and even Hume's version of how a whole bunch of senses turn into an idea. Mm -hmm. And he's just saying, let's look at how we look at stuff. We'll just talk about the water bottle. We'll talk about the water bottle for the rest of the the episode. How does water bottle get from my desk into my mind? And, And what happens to it as you move around it, as you take it in from different perspectives and relate it to the sort of objects around it, right? When Your circulatory I, system probably plays a big role in that. My blood, I, I, my, my, my blood does. I, I think when I use the term horizon, what I just tend to mean is at the largest level, it's the world, it's the background against which objects appear, right? So another way to talk about this is in terms of figure ground. Right, So you're just kind of lazily scanning around you. You're not really looking at anything in particular. There's a th- load of things soliciting your attention, and attention is key here. But you don't really pay your attention to any of those objects. And suddenly, something you're interested in for some reason or other, right? We don't want to claim there's some kind of rational origin of our interests, but it just kind of is the way it is sometimes. You're interested in something, you focus on it. Suddenly a horizon kind of appears, which consists of all the other objects that fade into the background that are concealed, and the object in the foreground, the one that you are paying your attention to, the one you're focusing on. So a horizon is kind of relative to that whole situation, but then at the largest sense when we're talking about horizon in general, it really is our sort of historical spatial world, the background of objects in a sense, right? It's the whole through which objects are parts, right? We understand objects as parts of wholes or as nodes of systems. He kind of talks about the system of objects, right? That then recedes into the background. This action of of moving, scanning, paying attention to, and and re- repetition of that process is is perception, right? When we we don't perceive from a static point in space, we move. We're constantly on the move. There's things happening. There's stuff going on around us that's fighting for our attention. The clamor of being. <laughs> I don't know whose phrase that is. Well, also it's also what's also kind of interesting is like <clears throat> our attention doesn't even <clears throat> it gets drawn in a way that seems kind of um, not not quite unconscious, but like not really like effortfully intentional, right? It's like, that's why I think Mary Laponti in particular uses this language of solicitation, at least in the English translation, right? That like objects in the world, they solicit you, like the, the spatiality of an object solicits you to just like feel, uh, perceive that there is like another side to it. Um, it's not like a mystery to you, right? You're not like, hmm, I wonder if there is another side or if I just have like a 2D image and like that's all there is. Like it just the world just is pulling you yeah. towards like this 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 spatiality, this like this potentiality of a world. And it also is soliciting you to and this is kind of what the intro is about, at least part of it is like there's also this feeling that the object itself has, uh, as you said, like a kind of wholeness to it, a kind of like stability to it. Like it just seems like it is like a stable object, uh, even though all you have are like perspectives on it. But it's still there's still something about it that solicits you to, to be like, that's an object that is like a stable thing. Yeah. Like how does that happen? Is the question. And I, th- 
I think this is where you see phenomenology really differ from earlier um, figures who are concerned with similar issues, right? Uh, particularly imperial, uh, imperialism. I am too political. Uh, empiricism. <laughs> You're so political. <laughs> particularly Slip of the uh, tongue. Empiricism uh, and what he calls intellectualism, right? Which is just a kind of fancy name for Kantianism. Uh, since one of the interesting things about this is both the major empiricists from Locke uh, to Hume and then Kant uh, all say that we're going to talk a lot about how experience becomes possible, uh, but they never actually really talk about the objects that people experience. Uh, there's this tremendous concern for what prefigures the possibility of any kind of experience, uh, whether it's the capacity of the human mind to link the memories of experience together uh, to create the possibilities for perception if you're the empiricist, or it's this grand transcendental architecture that Kant conceives of and defends in the critique of pure reason uh, that preconditions the possibility of experience. But in none of these kind of circumstances do we actually talk about something that Husserl and Ponty both think is much more immediate, which is just what it actually feels like kinesthetically to experience something, right? And I think it's a very, very good point uh, because you can scour Locke and Hume and Kant, uh, and you very rarely ever hear them talk about, to use Pill's metaphor, water bottle, what it's like to see water bottle, feel water bottle, to taste water, you know, running down your throat. None of that ever really appears because they're always saying we can't even get to that yet. Um, and what's refreshing about the phenomenologists, they say, well, why don't we just start by talking about that? What's it like yeah. to actually exist and experience these things? Maybe not directly, but to experience them as a kind of subject. So I, pro I promise so this was about the real world. I'm watching, because I can see on my screen, this also applies to uh, your ears as well, not just your eyes, but I'm watching yeah. people talk. I look at Eric while Eric's talking, then Victor and Matt disappear for me. Then Victor starts talking. My water bottle kind of disappears. It becomes a background and for Merleau-Ponty, it's that background that allows one thing to pop into attention or your your intention. So my water bottle keeps disappearing because I'm focusing on other stuff, but I can still see everything in the room around me. It's just that they are not soliciting attention at that time. And even exactly. you, listener, there. wherever you're at, you're just doing this uh, with your ears. Um, you might be driving. You might be uh, cleaning up your apartment. And you're, you're doing all of that, but that fades into the background while you're listening to one of us idiots uh, give our spiel on this. So your attention is solicited, but that's not your whole world. The world allows that little bit of attention to appear as intentional. Yeah, exactly. And I think to go back to our earlier episode on AI, uh, this is why phenomenology has a lot to say that's critical of kind of rationalistic uh, or empiricist conceptions of how it is that consciousness works. Because... Again, both of them are so fixated on the background conditions for the emergence of anything like a conscious entity to emerge, um, usually understood in these very formal terms, whereas the phenomenologists will say, well, what about being an intentionalist being that's invested in the world, right? Uh, that means having a certain kind of care in what's going on, which is precisely why certain things appear to you as more significant than others, right? You're thirsty, you see water bottle, and it appears as water bottle to you. I want to have a conversation with Victor or Eric, and they for, are foregrounded in my perception in a way that the background isn't. Yeah, and I think what Victor said is very important about this idea of intention, right? Because sometimes we slip into this way of thinking where when we are you know, attending to an object, 
when we're perceiving an object, right, that there's somehow some kind of rational, intentional stance underlying that attention, that it's almost like a propositional kind of thing, you know, the way we're about something, that consciousness is about something. But what Ponty wants to do is he wants to get back into the preconceptual, pre-propositional, even pre-linguistic kind of aspect of, of perception. And so the solicitation is kind of important here because it is sort of pre-intentional. It's not our, our intentions are not the ground of our perception, right? Intentions, in a sense, come later or after. I think those those sorts of preconceptual aspects of perception that Merleau-Ponty wants to get at are exactly what underlies the intentional stance. So it's something not to start with, but it's something to understand is in there. But that's it's the kind of confusing part of getting away from both rationalism and empiricism with phenomenology, right? So empiricism wants to build up from impressions that are simply just copies of the sensations that sort of hit hit us from outside in experience, right? And build up from impressions and talk about the laws of association. And that's the empiricist kind of explanatory apparatus, right? And then the rationalists have their own explanatory apparatus. Or if you want to talk about cognitivists, you have Kant, right? Where he's going to focus more on the mind's contribution to our perception of objects, right? Uh, the categories of the understanding and the rules of the understanding. Now, phenomenology brushes both of those things aside and says, let's, because those, those are both, right? wrong for Ponty, right? Empiricist, no, our our ideas in our mind are not simply just copies of sensations outside us. The things in our head look nothing like the things in the world, and it's silly to assume that they do. And on the rationalist side, right, when you're focusing on the contribution of the mind to the object, you get into all sorts of other problems in relation to that as well. I mean, and give me Ponty a few beers and I'll get the picture right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, it sounds like it sounds like what you're describing is, I mean, another way of putting it is to like the kind of debate or tension between like representationalism versus non-rep. Because I, and I think Merleau-Ponty and phenomenology is ultimately like an account of non-representational uh, that like are at base, our engagement with the world is non-representational. And when I say representational, I mean that like a representationalist view would be like we have a propositional idea or like an image in our head that, that when we when we're like looking for something, for example, like we'll have or like or when we're engaging with something in the world, it's like we have some representation of that thing that lets us recognize that thing. And then we are able to engage with it because we have that representation of it somehow in our mind. And a non-representationalist view is like, well, no, no, like you don't really have these like rational propositional images in your mind or like ideas in your mind, but you just are engaging with the world. With, on a bunch of different, like there are obviously like thoughts that are kind of like image based or whatever, but there, but, but also like, that's why the body is important for Merleau-Ponty, right? Like, like drawing attention to the body, the whole point of it is to be like, our engagement with the world is not predicated on representations in our, in our brain, because we're forgetting the body when we do that. There's like a whole layer of like, and I would, I, I like to think of it as almost like our body schema is, which is a term that's used in at least one of the translations of the phenomenology perception 
gets like reconfigured so that like our sensitivities to the world. I like to think of it almost in, in, in terms of like sensitivities that we are sensitive to certain things in the world where they will draw our attention and that thing will become in the foreground rather than the background. And the, the reason for those sensitivities, those shifts in sensitivities have to do with a bunch of factors that are social and habitual that we'll get to later in the series. But that's one way of thinking about it. Yeah, or maybe attunement to certain things or something Att- like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. like a tuning fork. <laughs> Just At before, I'd like, just before, I'd like to reiterate, Eric and Victor actually just said the same thing. It might not sound like it, but I want to put it in as simple as possible terms so everyone knows exactly where we are. The one idea is if we have a whole bunch of sensations, we see color, we see something shiny, we see black, we see liquid. How is it that these perceptions of my water bottle, by the way, turn into water bottle? First of all, I have to be expecting it to turn into water bottle. I can't just be receiving impressions and then it turns into that. Because for Merleau-Ponty, the empiricists can't explain that. And on the other side, the rationalists are like, no, there's an idea of water bottle. And then those are conformed somehow to the outside world. So we're really trying to figure out how the idea corresponds to um, things that exist outside of us that we experience. And one is on one side saying the idea is in your head and everything and the actual sensations don't matter. And one's saying there is no idea, it's just sensations. So he's trying to bridge that gap and that's what we're going to be going on about for the rest of the time. And I want to point out how radical this idea is. Uh, Ponty is a very humble thinker in a lot of ways. You can see that in the way that he really engages extraordinarily thoroughly uh, with what he takes to be the primary competing positions. Uh, empiricism and intellectualism to his own. Uh, but in a certain sense, you could construct a genealogy in Pontian terms to say that the biggest problem with Western philosophy goes all the way back to somebody like Plato, uh, for whom the problem of representation poses itself precisely because the body it so easily deceives us into getting an accurate vision of the world. So the trick has to be to get as dissociated from the body and its experiences as possible. Think about the metaphor of the cave and moving up to the heavens. Uh, and Ponty implies sometimes that you can see this platonic prejudice carry through the whole history of philosophy, no matter how, Western philosophy, no matter how far people get away from Plato. You see it in Locke, you see it in Kant. And he's the first one to say you will never solve this problem of representation, or indeed, uh, if you want to put it with capital T, the truth of the world by dissociating from the body in this way and pretending like it's a problem. Because we are invested in the world as bodily beings, that gives birth to the intentionalist dance which, dance, which makes perception possible. So we need to take the body very seriously as an object of theoretical inquiry rather than just denouncing it. Uh, and he's this wonderfully funny and remarkably French uh, joke somewhere where he says, the most offensive thing about the body to many philosophers has been the fact that people shit and fuck and spit, and that all seems low. Uh, whereas I'm going to tell you, if you didn't do those things, you wouldn't be where you are right now. Uh, so stop being embarrassed by the body, embrace it, and take it seriously. Filthy. I like it. <laughs> and another way of, of saying that is when you have a, a view, I don't, I don't want to shit on Plato because I, I think it's too foreign, but we can maybe shit on someone like Descartes. If you have this vision, and I think people take this a little bit common sense, that there's an objective world and science knows it. And, or just a, a world that is true, a true world that we might be wrong about, we might be right about it, but there is something out there. 
And for Merleau-Ponty, that's fine that we conceive of that. But the only reason that we can conceive of that is because we do have bodies that are so familiar with the world. They're so stuck in it that we can actually dissociate and pretend like we weren't stuck there. Like mm -hmm. the example I like to use is if you, you might be listening to this while you're driving. Think of what a complex behavior and system of habits driving is. You're, you could, if you make a mistake, you could kill yourself or kill somebody, but it, it's almost like it's nothing to you. You can listen to a bunch of nerds talk about philosophy while you're driving and not kill anybody. So the fact that that can happen means you're already so used to the world, and that's because you grew up in it. You don't, you're not born able to drive. But because you have all these interactions, you build up what we're calling a life world that you're, you can engage with as, as second nature, without thinking about it, without being conscious of it, without making rational judgments about it. Yeah, one of the things that Merleau-Ponty does that's really spectacular, uh, just to say, I think Sartre around the same period does a good job of this uh, in his novels, especially as he says, think about the way that the world as you understand it and contemplate it intellectually is designed precisely for bodily entities like us. You know, I wake up in bed, I'm lying down flat because I have a back and this is a biological necessity for me. I get up and there's a door handle that's about level with my hand and I open it that way. You know, I go into the kitchen and I pour myself a glass of water and there's a handle on my mug because again, I have fingers and digits and all that stuff. Uh, and again, you do so much of this unconsciously without ever really thinking about how we could have a very differently structured world if we had a very different body. Uh, the geometry of social space as it presents itself would have to be entirely reconfigured. Uh, and I found the book really refreshing because that's such a puzzling way to think about things uh, that it really compels you to ask yourself how many instances of this you can see. And it's really amazing uh, how much depends on us having the bodies that we happen to have in terms of our politics, architecture, aesthetics, you name it. Right? Yeah. I, I also think like, you know, what's important about about this kind of account too is, you know, I still think if there's like, you know, there's a specter of like the older empiricist rationalist conception of the human being always in the background. I feel like I feel like when we talk about anything, uh, like anything social, even philosophical, you know, I think that there's that specter of like, I guess, you know, there's different versions of it, you know, like even in economics, there's like the rational actor, right, which which plays like a role in economics. And there's and like, I think in politics, when we talk about, I mean, even in like Marxism, there's like this idea that like, you know, you're going to find your class interest and then you're going to like, you're going to act or whatever. And, and yeah, I mean, there's nuances there and there's like ways of reading those things that could maybe be consistent. But in general, I think like there is in the background of philosophy of things that we care about politics, which are, you know, we're not going to talk about today that like, you know, even radical politics, that, that there is the, an implication of a kind of rationalist view of the human being that like we are more in control and more aware of like what we are intentionally doing and that there's more possibility to like intentionally do things differently and get out of kind of being stuck in certain ways of thinking and ways of being in the world that um forget i think like the phenomenological view of the human being and our bodies and the kind of limitations that the, the body and like the ways that the world is structured for us as a consequence of our bodies um I think that is forgotten and ignored or like claims are made that ignore it. Yeah. I just so that people don't think I'm, I want to shit on Merleau-Ponty because of what I said earlier on about my critique of phenomenology. Uh, he was a radical leftist. He wrote for Le Temps Mandan, uh, described himself as kind of part of the anti-communist left. So if we were actually to have a conversation about 
politics, I imagine that most of us would probably broadly agree uh, with some of what he said. In fact, he probably wouldn't be liberal enough for me. So no problem with him on that front. You know, if you do try to publish that thesis that that we need to step away from phenomenology, I'm going to do a full live stream taking down your book. <laughs> Fair I guess warning. those views about the human are always in the background because they are part of our sort of historical horizon of understanding, mm -hmm. right? The Enlightenment and the scientific revolution. And those sorts of things are always in the background of our philosophizing and our phenomenological experience. Those things just, it, it's not like, for instance, it's not that, it's not that Ponty doesn't like science, it's that he just thinks that uh, many of us are doing it wrong or have a backward way of, of looking at science as something, as, the, as that, again, view from nowhere right where you can see an object but from no perspective in particular which is actually almost to see it from every perspective at once and i i get the sense that the phenomenologist thinks of that as as sort of impossible right because you always have a perspective you always have a measure of of time and and space over which your perception unfolds and it's always a process of unfolding in those terms within your horizon and so it's kind of science that tries to deny the existence of a body for instance is a science that's gone very very wrong and into a kind of objectivist stance right with all the sorts of assumptions and problems that brings along with it and the phenomenologists rather emphasizes again our our involvement in the world and our thrownness in the world and our sort of very partial view of the world where our gaze our gaze our our looking at things is always intermingled with other gazes and even the gazes of the object right when i look at a house and i see another house behind it it's almost in a strange way like that that house behind the one i'm looking at has a view of the house that I'm looking at, that I don't have. I have to adjust my position. Just for uh, just for our listeners, Eric does like to stalk his neighbors every now and then. That's what the telescope in his room is for. Yeah, yeah. he's got a nice balcony for looking into his neighbor's windows. Exactly, and I <laughs> always have to look through the the glass <laughs> and then take it down off my head for a second to see what I'm looking at. Uh, I like I look and I zoom in and I say, "Oh, there's a nice pair of boobs," and then I take them down. It's actually a guy <laughs> bending over in the fridge and his butt cracks hanging out. So it's always important to change your perspective <laughs> to have it adaptive to time. Yeah, one of the great quotes in this is, uh, "Each object is the mirror of every other." And part of this view from everywhere, his, his example is a house. My example is a water bottle. Even though you can't ever see the whole thing at the, at the same time, you can always imagine what it looks like from the other side. But then we string together these imaginations and then say, if we could see from everywhere, that would be a complete view. But it's impossible to see from everywhere. That's the point. Not so, to yeah. mention our gazes would have to penetrate into the object and right, see its insides it. and everything about it, like almost like an X-ray vision. So the total view, the, oh. the total view is an imaginary view, is what he's kind of saying. Yeah. Well, it's kind of virtual, like so, like you, like so, but the, but like that's true. But then, like the question that the phenomenologist asked is like, 
yeah, of course. So we can't see the things from the uh, from like all sides, but that but yet we still get this sensation of like getting the whole object, right? Right. Right. So like it doesn't actually feel like we're missing out. That's the puzzle, right? And we're that's where the prejudice of the idea also comes from. Exactly. But exactly. then we think that the idea is the actual thing, and that's the mistake. Exactly. Exactly. I think to go back to this kind of genealogical account of the history of Western thought, you can see elements of this totalizing prejudice uh, in many different streams that dissociate from the body. Again, you can think of Plato and this notion that real philosophical thought means contemplating the ideas in their purest form. Or let's go to the kind of Cartesian example that Eric gave. If I were to enter into a room as a good Cartesian, uh, the first thing that I would do would be to try to rationalize it by putting it in a grid, trying to contemplate the geometric relations between all the different objects in there. I would do anything but actually just look at the objects and ask, what do they relate to me uh, as, right? Uh, and Ponty's emphasis to say, no, we have a kind of body image or that's kinesthetically embedded in everything that we do. And so to try to Cartesianize our understanding of the room by understanding it in terms of its geometry, et cetera, isn't necessarily a bad thing if that's what you want to do, but to think that that's the way most of us actually perceive the world when we enter into a room is just wrong. Uh, and because what we should be focused on in philosophers is our every day, ordinary experience of the world, it's not what we should be attentive to. Uh, and to go to Eric's other point, I also think he stresses the fact that if we're going to genuinely be scientific in our approach to how it is that most of us actually perceive the world, assuming that we're all good Cartesians distorts um, how it is that most of us actually apprehend it. So we have to abandon uh, that kind of idealization. There's a certain way that Ponty does some really interesting things with those ideas about geometry. Because, you know, when you, when you are looking at something, right, it appears closer or further away. It appears larger or smaller than the things around it. We have two eyes, right? So we can have a measure of depth perception, yet we don't have to do the calculations in order to tell how far away something is or how, like, we don't have to do any calculations about, about size and light and modeling and light to understand how far or close something is. We kind of do that automatically. We take it for granted. But the, as, as we know about Gestalt psychology is they love to do experiments and test the limits of perception and try to present us with situations where our perception breaks down, where it fucks up, where an object getting larger looks like it's getting closer. There's a lot of famous sorts of experiments you can look up on YouTube that come out of Gestalt psychology, where it looks at those sort of limit cases of our perception, where things break down and also sort of injuries to our brain and nervous system and what, what sorts of things break down after those kinds of things happen to us, which actually gives us a lot of insight into how the normal functioning of, of a mind and how perception is supposed to work. So those limit cases become very important and Ponty goes into them quite a bit, brings up a lots of examples, which is another like sort of just pleasure about reading his stuff is that loads of examples, loads yeah. of very interesting cases where, for instance, an object getting bigger, we perceive it as getting closer, but it's actually just getting larger or maybe the other way around. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we can't tell if you, you know, if you do one of those experiments where you're looking into a box 
and there's some objects in it and they're on stands, but the stands are covered up, which one's the closest? And we have a way of doing that, sort of just perceiving, looking that one, oh, that one there's closest. Then they reveal the machinery underneath and it turns out that one's actually further away. Or that weird like illusion room where you look at a certain angle, the room looks completely normal. And, and but then somebody walks into the room and and you realize the room's all fucked up and and like on this crazy angle and and the back of the room is actually like kind of a, a weird shape and not it's not a in other words it's not a normal room except from the angle that we see it from those sorts of experiments are very interesting in gestalt psychology anyway and he picks up on them and he doesn't like those though I mean, he, he other- uses them, but he doesn't like... Do you know that illusion where there's like a, something sitting and casting a shadow on a chessboard? And then you say, oh, well, this white is actually the same color as the black square in a different part. Oh, oh yeah. I don't know that one. It, it, like it, it, They say if you actually knew the color of each one, then you would know that they are the same color, like scientifically speaking. Or when there's like a, a line optical illusion... And he's actually opposed to these because you're saying these are actually the same color. And Merleau-Ponty says, no, no, you're changing the entire context around it. Maybe one color's the same if you look at it in isolation, but nothing in the world, in the phenomenal field, actually exists in isolation. So changing the context actually changes the object. Maybe not for, maybe not for a Photoshop eyedropper tool, but for a human being, it does. Uh, it reminds me, actually, uh, a couple months ago, Begin came uh, onto our program to talk about her work as a cognitive scientist. And a lot of her research focuses on this. And I remember when I needed some money, I used to depart- participate in the Department of Cognitive Science uh, experiments where they would sit you in a chair and have you look at a pathway that seemed to be moving. Uh, but it was very difficult to tell whether it was the pathway that was moving or actually just a ball that was progressing through a giant pathway. Uh, and I remember asking her, so which one is it actually? And she said, well, I can't tell you because that's the whole thing. We're trying to test what you perceive it to be. Uh, and in my good Cartesian fashion, I just wanted to go smash the thing being like, there must be a good answer, right? Either the ball is moving or the room is moving. It cannot be both, right? Uh, but I think, you know, Merleau-Ponty is very helpful in kind of weaning us off of that temptation by suggesting that it's not necessarily a matter of perception in the sense that everything is relative, uh, but that you can study the way that context frames our perception of things like motion. And looking at it scientifically and saying this is actually that and this is actually that, that's just a different perspective. Yeah. It's not by necessarily the, way, uh, the correct perspective. By the way, I was right. The room was moving. The ball was staying where it fucking was. <laughs> I don't care what my sister <laughs> says. That was the right answer. Fuck it. Congratulations. Before <laughs> yeah, we before we wrap, because I want to preview the rest of what we're going to be talking about here. I want to bring it in relation to uh, social media because we started off with that. Because um, I think it's it's well documented by a number of opiners, including myself, that there's something that social media does to our our. Uh, horizon or life world that is really toxic to the way that we expect our minds to be able to work with the world. So I wondered if anyone had a thought on on that and what you think Merleau-Ponty can help us uh, return to sanity. Well, I wonder, well, okay, well, one thing that I thought about was 
uh, Baudrillard a little bit. Like, so I think, like, I wonder, I don't know Baudrillard well enough, and I haven't definitely haven't engaged with any of the secondary literature, but I guess I wonder if there's a way of reading like hyper reality phenomenologically. Like, uh, like I wonder if there if there's some way of like th- of like making sense of that concept through like a uh, through a phenomenological lens. That's kind of a question. I mean, I don't have an answer for it. But I mean, I have another question too. Is when when Ponty talks about the um, the phantom limb, is that is that could that be a little bit like this new phenomenon that appeared in the news? It's called um, mass social media induced illness, <laughs> where where um, Tourette like illnesses have been observed <laughs> in i guess teenagers or whoever using tiktok instagram or youtube or other oh, that that's sort interesting. of body media as i sometimes like to call it because it's very body focused it, that sort of spread of those illnesses actually kind of follows a similar logic to the phantom limb illness where you know you 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 lose a limb but you feel like it's still kind of there it almost feels a little bit like that you you I don't know the the symptoms of Tourette's manifest in a certain way, like the phantom limb kind of manifests in a person. It becomes, it becomes, I don't I don't even know how to talk about it. It becomes part of your perceptual world. I, I'm I'm not sure how the yeah the that's mechanism of transfer is. That's a super interesting idea, right? So like I guess you know, that, that somehow like the, you know, the people who are like live online a lot, like their life world is so like colored by like ways of engaging through like online platforms that then when they like leave, uh, the real world, it's like they're, they're attuned towards engaging in the similar way. And I guess that you're saying that maybe it instantiates itself as this kind of weird Tourette syndrome. Yeah, no, no, they, they actually, really like, funny theory. we have to, we have to read this article cause they are, they actually, demonstrate all the symptoms of Tourette's without having, you know, the physiological condition that requires you or that is required for having Tourette's. Yeah. Tourette-like symptom is, is symptoms is specifically mentioned. And it, it, yeah, I think you might be right. Like that way that it conditions us. And then we go out into the world and we sort of play out those scripts in a certain way that we learn off of social media, right? Like just in the same way that much of our much of the things we know about are mediated to us by you know computers and social media, and so our behaviors towards them are modeled before we even encounter the objects themselves, and this seems like a weird case of that where almost like the symptoms of certain illnesses are manifesting in people, and then they I don't know what the the sort of common symptom, I guess, would be would be twitching or involuntary motion, and so. Well, I wonder. That I wonder becomes habitual. Way, <clears throat> I wonder if another way of reading it too is like, you know, by by because I think one of the things that like a Merleau-Ponty account <clears throat> or a phenomenological account, at least one that focuses on the body, it's like the body needs to be oriented and configured the body schema in order for it to like operate properly in the world basically right so it's like you know that i think there's like quite a strong analogy to be made between skill acquisition like and just like habits like i think they're like two sides of the same coin so like you know being able to engage in like in like a real social world requires almost like a kind of skill acquisition um to be able to like read other embodied cues of other people so like perhaps it's not so much that they're because when you're online, like your body isn't doing anything like like I mean, it is obviously, but like it's not, you know, you're just looking at the screen 
and like in some ways like a lot of other like kind of corporeal engagements or whatever is like is kind of tamped down you're just sitting there and like you whatever so so it, it could not it, it might not be the fact that like what's happening is like the habitual embodied engagement online is being transferred to the real world but rather that like the ability to habitually engage with the real real world is like somehow underdeveloped it's like not ready and then it's like and this is all obviously speculative, but like, and then it's like the resulting in this symptomatic twitching because it's like they don't know how to just like be a body say, in the non-cyber world or something. No, I would say though that your body is doing something in this circumstance, and this is actually a pretty oh, key is. point. And then I'd like to yeah. move to uh, my key theoretical argument, uh, <laughs> because in part, you know, there's this there's this implication that um, roll out the carpet. The brain is, in some senses, still disconnected from the body. So if your brain is active and your body isn't do and the rest of your body isn't doing anything, your body isn't doing anything. And I think that Merleau-Ponty would stress that actually the brain is embedded in the body uh, and functions as part of the body rather than something disconnected from it. Uh, so mental activity is a kind of physical activity. Uh, it's just of a different kind, which is precisely, I think, why there's this interconnection between how we're feeling and what we experience in the rest of our body and the experiences of our body and our thought processes. But now to my key theoretical Wait, wait, point. wait. I think I can drive that home a little bit further. And, uh, is, to say, is to say that when, for instance, you know, looking at social media, okay, whatever, or watching a movie, reading a book, right? I think there is research out there, but I think this actually comes from Ponty as well, is that 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 sort of embeddedness you were referring to, the brain, our, our minds are embodied, right? The brain, body, environment kind of embodiment idea. And when we're experiencing the world, for instance, you go outside and you pet a dog. And according to this sort of research and according to Merleau-Ponty, who frames it a certain different way, you, you, you petting the dog is a certain perceptual experience that you have or from the neurological perspective, it triggers certain pathways and neurological reactions in your brain, right? And then when you go sit on the couch and you're watching a show and that show shows somebody petting a dog, there's evidence that it actually activates the same sorts of centers in your brain as if you were physically doing it. We, we call that like a kind of haptic experience, right? That bodily involvement in the world and how that forms the basis of our understanding of of symbols and images and things like that as well. So again, that that sort of social media phenomenon where there's this kind of illness being spread through social media may have a kind of be conditioning us in a certain way where we get this experience in place of having Tourette's. We sort of see somebody performing these involuntary motions and the same sort of movement centers are activated in us in a certain way. Like, I don't, I don't know what you call that kind of shit, mirror neurons or something like that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But you sort of model that behavior yourself and then it becomes pathological in the same sort of way that when you see an image on the television of somebody petting a dog or, I don't know, you could say even smelling a, I don't know, an apple pie on the television. That activates your own previous experiences of those events. And so there's always that sort of embodied, haptic, tactile, sensual involvement, even if it seems like you're at a, a representational kind of distance from what is being represented. You have a bodily involvement in it as well. Sorry, Matt, go ahead. Grand theory time. Okay, big theoretical question that we're all dancing around when it comes to this is, should you do psychedelics to try to change your perceptions? And as a channel called Plastic Pills, 
I think that we really do need to go negotiate these questions. And my argument is going to be an emphatic, uh, if cautious, yes. Do we have to do it live? <laughs> yes. Fun. You want to just trip, <laughs> just trip yeah, on well, a live stream? <laughs> the mushroom episode. Every, everybody gets a different one. It's like, all right, acid, mushrooms. Somebody else is going to sit there and do a little MDMA. And we're all going to see where we wind up. Okay, well, hopefully none of our listeners have got Tourette's from TikTok. But speaking of phantom yeah. limbs and something that I know we're all familiar with is phantom ring or phantom buzz. When you think that your phone is buzzing, but it wasn't, you just made it up in your yeah. head. And there's actually a, a Merleau-Ponty explanation for this, and that's the anticipation. You're expecting this thing to happen, oh, yeah. Yeah. and it's primed you to respond to it. So you expect it even if, I don't know, it scratches your, your leg hair or something and you think your phone buzzed or you hear a, a car outside and it sounds like uh, your phone is, is rumbling. Um, and this kind of, it, it's a silly example that we're all familiar with, but it does impinge on this, what social media has done to our minds, not, not causing Tourette's specifically, but how much of your attention it demands even when it's not buzzing or dinging or calling your attention to it. It's like the anticipation is always directed at this little device. And even if that's not causing something as serious as Tourette's symptoms, it's doing something else, certainly. Yeah, I, I certainly, I, I have my phone in my pocket all the time, like on my upper thigh area. I get muscle twitches there all the time. It's very strange. And then sometimes I feel like my phone is going off. I mean, I don't know. It's that kind of retention into the future of something strange, like when you take your hat off, but you feel like you're still wearing it for quite a while after you take it off. Or when you put it on, you know, it feels like you're not wearing it. It's that kind of, that, I don't know, these these terms are kind of new to me, that sort of pro-tension, retention, where you have the sort of past spilling into the present, but then you sort of have an anticipation of the future built into the present as well. It's not just the present as a kind of simple here and now. It's very complex temporally. And so you get those sorts of effects with social media, with hats, with with phantom limbs and phantom rings and all that sort of stuff. It's really very interesting, I think. Vic? Um, yeah, just I wanted to quickly add one, one more thing about um, like sort of trying to understand what the mind is, right? Because, you know, I mean, we've been talking about phantom limb and like uh, earlier there was like referencing of sort of like, you know, doing brain scans and you can see what parts of the of the mind are activated. And I think, you know, there's a cognitive, I think he's a cognitive scientist, Alva Noe. And I remember him kind of using this analogy to say uh, people who want to like overinvest the brain with like where the, where you can find the mind. And he's inspired by Mary Ponty, by the way. And he said something like trying to understand like what the mind is by like looking at the brain is kind of like trying to understand what money is by just like looking at the molecules of a dollar bill. And <laughs> in his point, I think there is really just to say that like to understand what the mind is actually doing, like you, you can't cut off like how it's interacting with the world, like what the world it's in, like that makes it what it is. There's like a reciprocal interaction between like mind and world and body and all these factors. And I think uh, similarly, like money obviously is, is, is like a, is obviously like a, a, a network object or something that you can't really explain what it's doing unless you see what it's doing in a broader context, right? 
I like that. I, I've dipped into some of that literature on the, the sort of Merleau-Ponty inspired cognitive science angle. And sometimes it's referred to as um, an activist theory or, or the yeah. extended mind thesis or the embodied mind. There's a couple different streams and they do have some differences between them, but it seems like Ponty is a broad influence on a lot of those directions. And I've looked yeah. at them a little bit. They're very interesting. Yeah, the 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 idea that, you know, and I've read this in, in in another theorist named Gregory Bateson too, the idea that when you take psychedelics, the sort of that sort of that border, I guess you call it, that metaphysical division we kind of assume between our bodies and the worlds around us kind of disappear. He kind of says we've all we all listen to music, right? But when you take acid and listen to music, it feels like you're part of the song almost. You like can't yeah, tell exactly. the difference between your own thoughts and the and the melody, and those sorts of really interesting things uh, that that happen. Um, but but yeah, I think that that line of cognitive science that's inspired by Ponty is uh, pretty tight. It's promising for sure. It's got some stuff. But um, anyway, I don't know if oh yeah. So Merleau-Ponty's examples typically have to do with vision and the gaze and perspective, but he also applies it to time. You could easily apply it to sonics because it's supposed to be general experience. So as a preview of what's- A lot of tactile stuff too. Yeah. yeah. The ta yeah. The ta and later he's all on touch. He says seeing is a form of touch. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. The haptic again. That's what, look up the word yeah. haptic if, when you get a chance. It's it's kind of cool. We're gonna say haptic a lot, but uh, yeah, as as a as a I guess sort of a preview or maybe we're we're kind of planning this out as we go. We have a few like topics on paper, but we're trying to figure out what is this uh, fold of how our intention just. It, it becomes reality. It's not our reason that becomes reality. It's not our ability to argue with anime avies on Twitter, <laughs> but it's uh, this the expectation. And I think, yeah, the thing that I'm most afraid of, even with my own memory and my own ability to read like I used to, is uh, notifications. They're my They're my great enemy at this point. I have almost all notifications turned off except for when you guys message me, but that kind of expectation <laughs> that is basically 24 seven expectation of something new. Um, it, it doesn't just ruin your mind at the moment that that thing appears and like rushes into your day. It's ruining your whole day waiting for whenever that next thing is. And it's not you consciously waiting. It's like the phantom ring thing. Your body, your body mind is waiting for it. Yep. Yeah, I think even, you know, I think even the word anticipation is almost, I mean, I, I know what you're pointing at and like, I agree with you, but I think, you know, even the word expectation was actually the word that you used. Expectation, I still think even has an overly cognitive implication to it. Like, like, uh, like I have reason to expect this thing, right? It's like, right. as if like the reasons for expecting it matter, they don't, right? Like, like your body expects things because of the way your body's been, been, been reconfigured. Um, but right. I mean, it's not the wrong, correct I'm term would be the correct term would be pro tension. Yeah, pro -tension. yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of a preconceptual anticipatory stance. And what we're talking yeah. about, none of this occurs consciously from Merleau-Ponty, which is why I think he's like the best 
theorist of consciousness is to say that yeah. like 1% of your day is conscious. You're not conscious of everything that's in the room with you right now. If you look around, you can only be conscious of one thing at a time. The size of your ability to focus on something is like the size of a dime. Oh wait, yeah. we have an international yeah. audience. What's a what's an equivalent? Your thumb your thumbnail. If piece. you hold your thumbnail out at full length, that's how much space you can actually focus on. Everyone and everything is else. Am- everyone watches American media. They all know what dimes are. I just want to be culturally sensitive to the Germans and the Indians and the Eurocent divisions. We took that all from the Brit. Probably the Euro one cent coin. But they might their sizes might be rational. They might be rationally like associated with the actual amount of the worth of the coin, as opposed to us, where our dime is smaller than our five cent piece. So rational. Their their metric system. I think they're all fucked up. It's because we took that from the Brit from the Brits. A ten p. All right. So, yeah. anything else I you think, guys uh, uh, want to? Any any final questions you want us to think about before next week? Well, I guess the only other thing is I would say you can also anticipate maybe in the future uh, also doing some episodes where like once we get this account of phenomenology clear, we might do some episodes where we're like, okay, given this, how is this way of thinking about subjectivity being applied to? other fields, which could be interesting. So we might look at like, how is it influencing politics or other things, maybe like healthcare or something like that. So we're we're like practical applications of like how this way of looking at the world changes, like kind of maybe your method of inquiry, depending on what you're doing, because it has influenced a lot of things like psychology and uh, well, and obviously like um, Eric was talking about um, cognitive science and stuff like that. My my pitch related to that is, what I just reiterate that and and talking about phenomenology is an interesting way to sort of maybe make up for all those social relations and those sorts of things that have all moved online and that sort of maybe alienation you feel. And the idea that phenomenology, if you apply it to your own life and try to follow what Ponty and others are are trying to bring our attention to and trying to get us to think differently about, that they can perhaps have a salubrious effect on on your mental health and your ability to cope in times of trouble covid climate change and whatever economic crisis is next and whatever sort of horrible things are going to happen in the future that having a phenomenological grounding in your own experience and an understanding of it can be a kind of, I think it can be a kind of healthy thing. It can be very, very, um, very therapeutic to try to think about things through the phenomenological lens, because a lot of, a lot of other philosophies tend to be very abstract, very conceptual. I mean, even even historical materialism and dialectical thinking can be very can feel alienating in the sense that it's just not down to earth to the degree that phenomenology is i guess you'd say i mean it's very down yep. to earth but it like i don't know how you do a, a kind of phenomenological dialectics of perception and, and everyday experience i don't know if that would be doable but phenomenology it's got it it's got it in there you can yep. use it to ground yourself and maybe get a little bit closer to nature and the things around you rather than relying on the internet to 
comfort you or <laughs> reruns of friends or whatever other well, sorts of the things. The paradox is we're just making more internet content to tell you to or help you escape <laughs> exactly. from internet content. <clears throat> to get yeah. off the internet. It's not lost on me, but I mean we're telling you something, right? We're not just we're not we're not just going off about something else. We say, hey you listener, try this at home. <laughs> Maybe not not <laughs> so the drugs not the drugs part. Don't cut off your limbs. Don't try to test those things. But don't the other don't stuff. watch TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> well, to defend our particular form of, of, of internet entertainment, I think like we've talked about in the past, like the one like, you know, silver lining of the internet culture is like the proliferation of long form podcasts. Like, I think that's one of the few things that you can point to and be like, that's better than it was before. Right. Like when we were stuck with just like the couple media conglomerates that were feeding us like bite sized shit because they didn't think we had the attention span to like uh, to take up like a long form interview podcasts are actually proving that there is an appetite for that among a lot of people so or radio shows back in the day hey yeah. cbc yeah, shows, cbc yeah, exactly. ideas has always been pretty good yes but guess what they're government funded uh, right so they're they're getting paid to make stuff that is educational and like and stuff so like yeah but maybe maybe you'll be listening to this maybe outside of your drive to work if that's all the most common time you listen to radio and television maybe you just throw this on or throw on some kind of lecture or something and you go for a walk instead and you you yep. take it with you into the world instead of just doing it on the commute or doing it which is okay too but <laughs> Maybe maybe COVID has created some more space for you to fill up with your own interests and your own kinds of time-based activities. For me, it's uh, for me it's commuting. Well, I guess whatever, going like biking somewhere or taking the subway somewhere or cooking is when I listen to podcasts. Wait, so now we're like a healthy living podcast? I'm just we're just gonna just we're just gonna philosophy for everyday life, right? We're just gonna transition into a lifestyle podcast. Hey, if Jordan Peterson gets to pitch all of his grandiose theories as self-help books, then I think I think we're justified to do it, and we can do it better than he can. All right, episode if one. An, if you're an extrovert, listen to us. Episode one of how phenomenology will save your very soul. Perfect. Looking forward to the rest of the episodes. All right. Take care, guys. Peace.